Take your Bible with me and please turn to Colossians chapter 4. One of my favorite texts, Colossians 4 verses 2 through 6. For the past two weeks, I've been talking about reclaiming the gospel and evangelism. The first two messages were on reclaiming the gospel. This morning, it's on reclaiming evangelism. But you can't reclaim evangelism until you reclaim the gospel. And by reclaiming the gospel, I said we need to reclaim the definition of the gospel, that the gospel is about what a sovereign and merciful God has accomplished for sinners, a perfect redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is simple, but it's profound, it's deep, but that is the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture scriptures was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. But we must not only reclaim the definition of the gospel, we must re reclaim the exclusivity of the gospel. That salvation is in Christ alone. There is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And I know that causes uh, consternation to many people to think that people who have never heard the name of Jesus would go to hell and that there's something unjust about a God who would let that happen. And again, we come back to scripture. We know that there are no innocent people who go to hell. There is no one who is suffering today who is an innocent person. We know that every sinner has suppressed whatever truth that they've had, even if they did not hear the name of Jesus. Romans 1 tells us that they have the declaration of the heavens, of the glory and power of God, and sinners suppress that truth. They rebel against that truth. And so people go to hell because not because they haven't heard the name of Jesus. They go to hell because they have sinned against God. They have repressed and rejected the truth that God has given them. And of course, we could say from a human perspective that people go to hell because you and I haven't told them. Some are concerned about those in some distant world 10,000 miles away, but they're not even concerned about their next door neighbor who perhaps is just as unaware of the gospel of Christ as someone who is living in the darkest jungle. I plead with you this morning in this message. If you believe the definition of the gospel, if you believe the exclusive claim that only Christ can save, then 
care about people, not only those that are far away, but care about people that are living right next door to you who are in just as desperate a need of salvation as anyone in the farthest corner of this earth. Listen to our text this morning. I'm going to talk about reclaiming the intentionality of evangelism. That is, if it's going to take place, it's because we intend for it to take place. That we do the things that are necessary for evangelism to become a reality in our life. Listen to God's word this morning, Colossians 4 beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There are three ingredients that are always a part of intentional evangelism. You will not have biblical evangelism without all three of these things working hand in hand all the time. Let me start with some words by Donald McGavran, a missiologist, who concluded from his study of the New Testament that any believer who is spiritually healthy is involved in evangelism. So he is essentially saying, if I'm not in evangelism, then something's wrong with my walk with the Lord. These are his own words. No one can be fully biblically sound and spiritually renewed without being tremendously concerned about the multitudes of unreached men and women and indeed unreached segments of society. He's calling into question, and I believe rightfully so, if I'm not involved in evangelism, then there's something wrong with my walk with the Lord. I need to grow because if I am becoming like Jesus Christ more and more, then more and more I will share his compassion for those that don't know him. One of the great apologists of the last century who actually had his roots in Philadelphia was Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer often uh, lamented. He was somewhat of a, a, a prophet in many ways. He lamented where American society was and where, where it was going. In one of his writings, he said this. He said, here is the great evangelical disaster. The failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth as truth. He said there's only one word for this, namely accommodation. 
the, the evangelical church has accommodated to the world spirit of the age. And he went on to lament about the, the lack of concern that evangelicals have for those that don't know Jesus Christ. He said if we truly love our Lord and if we truly love our neighbor, we will ache with compassion for humanity today in our own country and across the world. We must do all that we can to help people see the truth of Christianity and accept Christ as Savior. Every person, he says, is worth fighting for, regardless of whether he is young or old, sick or well, child or adult, born or unborn, or brown, red, yellow, black or white. Every person is worth fighting for. Do you believe that? Then if you believe that, you will listen to these three ingredients of intentional evangelism and seek by God's grace to make them an integral part of your life. First of all, I want to talk about what I'll call intentional gospel-based prayer. Intentional prayer. Look again in verses 2 and 3. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Have prayer that is devoted. Prayer, he says, that is, that is disciplined. Prayer that perseveres. Prayer that does not give up on people. Because we tend to give up. We tend to look at people as being hopeless and you give up on your parents, you give up on that religious neighbor of yours, you give up on that child, that sibling, that friend, that co-worker. Recently I was talking to a, a pastor friend of mine and he was, he was lamenting, talking about how for 13 years He's been praying for the conversion of his daughter. His daughter had once professed Christ. Then she denied Christ. She chose a lesbian lifestyle. She married another lesbian. And he says, for 13 years, I've been praying that God would turn her heart to him and, and bring her to himself. What does a father do when his heart aches like that? What does a father do when his disappointment is so overwhelming? What does he do when, it, when his eyes are filled with tears? What can he do? He prays. And he prays. He prays to the God who saves sinners. He trusts in the God who saves sinners. He rests in the God who saves sinners. He prays and he keeps on praying. I know that I am the fruit of relentless, devoted, disciplined prayer who saw a child grow up 
Christian and reject it and live a godless life and how many times I broke my parents' hearts and brought them to tears and left home and came back and left home and but they never gave up. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed. Don't give up on that child, that parent, that loved one, that friend. Don't give up on what may appear to be a fruitless ministry. Don't give up because God is still the God who saves sinners. And Paul says, be watchful in your prayer. Pray with your eyes wide open. Pray, being aware of the world that you're living in, the needs that are all about you. Sometimes I'm aware that even though the Spirit of God has opened my eyes to see the glory of Christ and the gospel and how much I love the fact that I have been born again to a new life and I can see who Christ is. And yet, even though that has happened to us, we yet walk around like blind men and women when it comes to seeing the desperate need of a lost and dying world around us. Jesus had to say to his disciples, lift up your eyes, look on the fields. They're white. They're white already to harvest. They're almost past the time of reaping. They're in a desperate state. Lift up your eyes. I think sometimes we've convinced ourselves that ignorance releases us from responsibility. That if I don't read that missionary's prayer letter, if I don't keep my eyes open in my neighborhood, if I don't really listen to my neighbor's discussion about what's going on to his life, as long as I'm ignorant, then I'm not under obligation. I'm not responsible. But that no more works with what God has called us to do than it works with your mortgage or your car payment. You know, you can take your invoice every month for your car and you can say, well, I'm not going to read it because if I don't know I got it, I don't have to pay it. <laughs> but some morning, about three o'clock in the morning, you will hear some commotion out front and you will see your car being jacked up and pulled onto a flatbed and taken away. Because ignorance does not release us from responsibility. Tell Pico that you never got your bill and that's why you never paid it for six months after your electric is turned off. It doesn't work that way. God, I didn't know how desperate my neighbor was. Well, why didn't you ever have him over for dinner? Ignorance does not release us from our responsibility of being watchful in our prayer. And he says, be thankful. Have prayer that is rooted in 
gratitude rooted in both what I would say is a backward look when I look at what God has done for me in Christ and how he has saved me and forgiven me and thankful because of a forward look. I know what God's prepared for me. I know the, the glory that is yet to be revealed in Jesus Christ. Paul says, let your prayer be motivated by and be rooted in the gratitude that you have for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we pray for the advance of the gospel. We pray for the salvation of sinners when we are deeply thankful that God has saved me. An intentional prayer is always hopeful. He says, pray that God may open a door. Now, do you believe there's a God who can open doors for the gospel? And not only can open doors, that he does open doors. Here's Paul, the great missionary, writing from a prison cell, but still committed to the gospel of Christ and still aware that those who are watching over him day by day are in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he can say in Philippians, he says, as a result of my being in chains, the whole praetorium guard has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. 10,000 guards have heard the gospel of Christ because Paul is sitting chained to a guard every day and talking to every guard and every change of guard about Jesus Christ. And they are going and telling their friends, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck with Paul. And this Paul is telling us about Jesus, that we need to get saved. He says it went through the whole praetorium guard. Pray that God may open to us a door. God can do that. God will do that in his way, in his time. Paul says, I want to proclaim the mystery that I may proclaim it clearly. Sometimes we're, we're hesitant because, you know, I have people tell me all the time, you know, I just, I don't feel like I'm equipped to, to tell people how to get saved. And a simple answer is, well, you know how you became a Christian. You have a story. And if your story is rooted in the gospel... You have a story that you heard about Jesus. You heard about his death for you and his resurrection. You heard about your sin and your helplessness and you repented and you believed in Jesus and God forgave you and gave you a new life. I mean, you know that at least that much because you've experienced it. But there is something deep and wonderful and awesome about this gospel. I mean, it is a mystery. It is something that brings us to all that God becomes man. 
And that that perfect God-man lives a perfect human life and then takes on him the sin of the world and bears the judgment of God for sinners and then rises again so that he can offer life to all who believe. There's a profound mystery there, Paul says. Pray that I can make it clear. This is evangelistic praying. This is intentional, gospel-based praying. We pray that God will open doors. And that when that door is open, we can go through the door and we will have the boldness to speak the truth of Christ. And Paul reminds us that often this message brings opposition and you pay a price for it, but it's a price that's worthy. He says, you know, I'm a prisoner because of this mystery, but I'm still praying. I'm praying that God will open more doors, that I can speak more clearly the same gospel that put me into this prison. It's that wonderful. Intentional prayer. People get saved because God saves them. When you're discouraged because your words and your efforts and your love, you know, just hasn't done it, do more of that, but don't depend on that. Do more of that because it's part of God's means. But depend more on God, the God who saves sinners. But intentional gospel-based living, the second necessary ingredient, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, or as the NIV says, of the opportunity. Wisely, living wisely. Now Paul was a good Jew, thoroughly grounded in the Old Testament. So when he speaks of wisdom, he's speaking of wisdom with an Old Testament background. And wisdom, when you read through the book of Proverbs, you know, the book of Proverbs touches on almost every practical area of life. Wisdom, according to Proverbs, is simply this. Living by God's design. Or living skillfully by God's design. A wise man is a, wise, is a man who understands that God has an order, a design for life. And he lives by it. That's wisdom. God says, this is how marriage works. A wise man says, all right, I accept God's plan for marriage. God says, this is how economics work. You work. You get up early. You work hard. You work late if necessary. You work. You don't be lazy. You obtain as a result of that possessions, property, and you value that as a gift from God and you're a steward of that. And with that, you honor God with the first fruits. You give to those who are in need. You take care of your responsibilities. God has order and a wise person says, how does the world work? How did God design it? 
Oh, there's such a thing called gravity. That means I don't jump out of a 30-story window. That's wise. (laughs) But it's no less wise to say that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. And that the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That a wise person is one who always begins with the fear of God. So it's living a life that is ordered God's way. If you want to be evangelistic, if you want your neighbor to listen to you, your co-worker to listen to you, then if your life is not in order, if there's something about you that they reject, not the gospel, and honestly, There are many, many lost people who just don't want to hear about Jesus. Not because of Jesus, but because of you. You'll never get to Jesus. Because they just can't get past you or me. I love the way that Paul writes to the various uh, age groups and and, uh, genders within the church in the book of Titus. Listen to his words. He says, Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, sound in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can teach the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, similarly, he says, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example of doing what is good in your teaching. Show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say against you. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. Make the gospel attractive by being someone that somebody can like at least. Proverbs put it simply, if a man will have friends, let him show himself friendly. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Does your life have order to it in such a way that it's not a stumbling block, that people aren't rejecting you before they even get to the gospel of Christ. Let me tell you a sad story. And to me it is very sad. Because I know this man. I love this man. He's now with the Lord. 
But I can remember going to visit the house of this missionary. He was a member of our church. He was faithful, he was dedicated, he loved Jesus. And his mission was to reach Jewish people for Jesus Christ. That was his primary focus. So he invited me to visit him as, at his home one day and I went like pastors should. But when I walked through the door, I was struck by the foulest of odors. So repugnant that my mind was saying, get out of here. But my heart as a pastor was saying, you have to visit your church member. So I went in. And when I walked through the door, I realized that I had to navigate through this small path, through piles of junk. I mean, floor to ceiling, taking almost every square foot except a small, narrow path. He was a hoarder. And it was mostly junk. But he cleared a spot for me at his dining room table. But then he wanted to show me his favorite hobby that he was so proud of. And then I began to realize why it smelled so badly in that house. Because he brought out this huge snake and put it on the dining room table. And then he brought out a little mouse. He raised snakes and he raised mice to feed the snakes. And so he put the mouse on the table and the snake on the table and it wasn't a cat and mouse game, it was a snake and mouse game taking place. And the snake maneuvered on that table until he cornered the mouse at one end and then he hit it with his, just hit it and stunned it and swallowed it. We're having lunch today, by the way. You may have to finish for me because I can't stop laughing. <laughs> I did not plan that, by the way. That's not in my notes at all. I only returned to that home once. And that was because he called me and said the house had a fire. And the firemen were still there. And when I got there, the firemen said everybody had to leave the house. Nobody could come back to the house. Child welfare was called because of the living conditions. And uh, they said, you cannot move back into the house until you clear out the junk. It's a fire hazard. So shortly after that, I had to have a hard conversation. 
that pastors should have with people who need to know the truth. But it's never easy. You want to avoid it. But I had the difficult uh, conversation with them, and I simply said, you know, you cannot reach Jewish people for Christ. Because if you're going to reach people, you have to be hospitable. And if you're going to be hospitable, you invite them into your home. And I don't know a Jewish person that would walk through your front door. And if they did, if they could respect in any way whatever comes out of your mouth, because they would be so overwhelmed with the smell, with the... the, the the junk that was lying around. And he was very gracious and took it and accepted it. That's not wise living. That is living that is good for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when, when I drive down a street of nicely kept homes and, you know, kept lawns and find out that the dilapidated, falling apart, unkept home in the street belongs to a Christian who's trying to get all his neighbors saved. It doesn't work that way. Paul says... Walk wisely. Have an ordered life. And there are just things that naturally human beings should be concerned about. Whether you're saved or lost. They're, 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 they're built in their creation order. Things like cleanliness and organization and beauty. And to the best of your ability. But if you can't get past me, then you'll never listen to what I have to say. Let me remind you though that a well-ordered life does not win people to Christ. But it does keep relationships open, making evangelism possible. So I want to do whatever I can and at times restrain from whatever I would like to do and have the right to do in order to engage people. That's what Paul said he did in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. He said, sometimes I go beyond my comfort zone, you know, because I want to reach people. So to the Jew, I became a Jew, and to those under the law, I became as one under the law. You know, I, I want to relate to people, and so I will go beyond what's comfortable for me. And then he says, there are times when I will restrict my rights. I have the right to eat what I want and drink what I want. But if I know that I'm with someone that the way that I'm doing something or what I'm doing is offensive in such a way that I will never be able to have a conversation, then deny yourself. 
People say, well, you know, I'm from the DR. That's just the way we do it in the DR. Or I'm from, I'm from Africa. You know, that's the African way of doing it. Well, that's okay. Unless it shuts the door for the gospel. We make adjustments in life. We deny ourselves or we extend ourselves at times. Because we want to reach people for Jesus Christ. A well-ordered life, again, does not win people to Christ, but it does make the conversation possible. People don't want to hear about my Jesus if they know that I treat my wife harshly. People don't want to know about your Jesus if you're always bad-mouthing your husband. They don't want to know about your Jesus when you don't take care of yourself and your possessions, when you're not a considerate neighbor. They don't want to hear the gospel from you. Walk wisely toward outsiders. That sounds like a harsh way of talking about people. You know, I'm on the inside, you're on the outside, but it is a reality. They are outside. They're outside of the kingdom of light. They're outside of the gracious rule of Jesus Christ. They're outside of God's kingdom. They're outside of God's grace. They're outsiders and I should be concerned about that. How do I get them on the inside? I get them on the inside by sharing the gospel of Christ with them. But I can't share the gospel unless I'm walking wisely with the outsiders in mind. Intentional gospel-based living always is considerate of those who don't know the Lord. Just the other day, a woman was telling me, fairly new believer, excited about telling people about Jesus and she works in a big warehouse, a FedEx warehouse, and she's telling me that, you know, there's so few Christians there, and, you know, she often feels alone just trying to share Christ with her neighbors. But she says, there's one Christian there, but he bothers me. He says, every other word out of his mouth is F this, and F that, and F this, and... She says, what, 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 do I, what do I do? He tells everybody, I'm a Christian. You know, God understands. God's forgiven me. Because even the unbelievers are telling him, you're using the F word too much. I said, just go to him graciously and ask him. Please don't tell anybody you're a Christian. If you, if you love the F word, use it. But don't tell anybody you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, then clean up your mouth. It's simple. And it's not that Christians need to be perfect. If you put on that air, then those without Christ see through that 
quickly. But we do need to pursue godliness. That that is our goal. We're pursuing holiness. And when, when, we, when we fail, when we sin, we don't defend it or excuse it. We always humble, humbly acknowledge it. And we repent and seek forgiveness, both of God and if others are involved, we seek the forgiveness of others. You know, it's a powerful display of God's grace. When you tell an unbeliever that you were wrong and that you need their forgiveness. When you go into work the next day, when the day before you gathered with the guys and they were telling their dirty stories, demeaning women, and you laughed with everybody else. Yeah, Christian men can do that. They can get caught up in fear of the moment. But when the Spirit of God convicts you, you go in the next day and say, I was wrong. I won't participate in that. That's not honoring to my God. Forgive me for looking like I approve of that. Intentional gospel-based living will make the most of the opportunities that God provides. Paul says, pray that God would open a door. And then he says, make the most of the time. Or as the old King James says, redeem the time. And that's a literal translation. Pay the price to make that opportunity, and I like the NIV translation, make that opportunity yours. The Greek language has a couple of different words for time. We get one of our English word, uh, chrono, chrono, chronograph, chronological. Uh, chronos speaks of time in sequence. But there's another word that speaks of time as an event, as a specific moment. And this is what Paul's talking about here. He's not saying that you pay the price for 24 hours a day. He's saying that God provides opportunities to you. And you pay the price. When that door is open for the gospel, you pay the price to go through that door. You make that moment yours. And as some of you have heard me quote before this little saying that I don't know where it came from, but it's meaningful to me, that opportunity is like a fleet horse that pauses for one moment by your side. If you fail to mount that horse in that moment, you will forever hear the clatter of hoofbeats down the corridor of time. And that's the way gospel opportunities are often. The door is there, the conversation is open, someone has said something that leads you an open door to begin to talk about spiritual things. And Paul says, redeem it, pay the price which may be your self-consciousness, your fear, your other thing you have to do that may seem more important. 
redeem the time. The days are evil. I, we could all look back. I can look back on lost opportunities that, that pain me. Uh, I remember as a new, new believer when uh, one of my friends called and said, would you visit my brother? She had just come up, become a believer. The brother was not. He was a heroin addict. Would you visit him? He's overdosed. He's in the hospital. And uh, I can remember saying, I'll, I'll do that. But right now, I'm preparing a message. In my mind, I'm preparing a message to preach. And he died. And I look back and wish I had redeemed the time. That I had taken that moment that God had provided to talk to Richie about his soul. And we all have those in our life. But we can't do anything about them, but we can do something about the opportunities, that horse that is pausing for your, at your side for a moment, day after day. Will you mount it? Will you redeem that time? Intentional evangelism always is undergirded by fervent, devoted prayer. It must be accompanied by a wisely ordered life that is committed to taking advantage of the opportunities that God provides. But thirdly, it has intentional gospel-based speech. Prayer, living, and speaking. How do you speak? And I love this verse. I think I love it because... It convicts me so much. I need it so much. Let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt. So that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Let it always be gracious. And inviting. And thoughtful. Speech, he says that. Manifest grace, the goodness of God, the fullness of God's goodness overflowing in your life. You know, sometimes Christians are known for being the most unkind, unreasonable, inconsiderate, arrogant, instead of grace-filled. And the only way that we will have grace-filled speech is to have grace-filled hearts. Hearts that are overwhelmed with the goodness that God has shown us in Christ. Because Jesus said it's from within out of the heart that come all these evil things. Seasoned with salt. Speech that is inviting. Now, I like to eat. I enjoy eating. I enjoy the experience of eating. I haven't always done that. I think for a good part of my life, I just ate to live. You know, I, I went to a university where you had, you know, 20 minutes to eat your dinner at night. 
They were moving you in and moving you out. You, had, you, you, you ate very quickly. And you were eating to survive. You were eating so you could get back to work. And I still do that somewhat, but I love relaxing at a good meal. And when I go to a restaurant, or even to somebody's home, I'm enticed to eat by the presentation, and then by the food itself. You know, a good restaurant, the chef's not only a master at uh, flavor, at, at, at putting, making food palatable, he's a master at putting it on a plate in such a way that when it comes to you, it looks like something you want to eat. I empathize with my father-in-law. Because at this point in his life, he has to eat everything that is like mush. So even though it's potatoes and roast beef and corn and all of that good stuff, you can't, you can't see the, the beauty of it. I think we all like that. And then to put it to your mouth, like I did at the Stockwe restaurant about 20 years ago when I had my first taste of chicken contadina. And when that fork hit my mouth and my mouth just burst with flavors. I mean, of sausage and chicken and potatoes and corn and carrots and, you know, whatever they found in the refrigerator and just dumped it in. And, and then, I mean, it, it was an experience. And I love that now. I love to enjoy the presentation and to enjoy the experience of eating. Well, it's the same with the gospel. Let your speech be always with grace. Let it be well prepared and seasoned with salt. Make it palatable. How do I bring a message that indicts people and, 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 and tells them they're helpless and tells them that only Jesus can save them? How can I tell somebody the hardest thing in the world to tell them that they can never be good enough for God? How can I tell them in a way that they would receive it to the best of my ability, to be well prepared, to be well seasoned. Intentional gospel-based speech is always thoughtful. He says, have this kind of speech this well-prepared, well-seasoned, so that you may know how you ought to answer every man. And I find it striking that he doesn't say, so that you may know how you ought to witness to every man. But here his interest is that evangelism is a conversation. It's not just a one-way conversation. It's listening. Yeah. How do you like your steak done? 
Whenever I order a steak, I'm always asked that question. If they don't ask that question, then it's not a very good restaurant. How do you like it? They want to bring it to you in a way that will be most pleasing and palatable to you. Now the gospel itself is an offense. You can't remove the offense of the gospel. But you can remove the offense of you and your attitude and the words and the way you say things and when you say things. Because there's always a time. There's a good time, a bad time. Listen. Someone has said that there's always four essentials to an ongoing evangelistic conversation. Always four essentials. One is there's authenticity. That you're real. You're not an actor. And people really only know that as they get to know you. That's why there needs to be a conversation going on. You're listening, you're responding, you're listening, you're responding. There's authenticity. Secondly, he says, there's always caring. There's love that is shown regardless of how bad of a sinner you might think they are or how contrary of a lifestyle they may be living. That there's truly a sense that you care for someone. Thirdly, he says, there's always trust. That someone can sense that whatever they say to you will be held with carefulness, with confidentiality, with integrity. That there will be trust in that conversation. And then fourthly, there's transparency. Being open, being vulnerable, being willing to admit your mistakes. You know, I'm always careful when I'm telling somebody that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm always careful to tell them, I want you to know that I'm as bad and deserving of hell as anyone else and probably more than most. So when I'm telling you what the Bible says, I'm not telling you from standing on a pedestal. I'm telling you as one sinner who's been redeemed and forgiven to another sinner. So how we approach people. If people think, well, I could never be perfect like you. If that's the image you have of what a Christian is, then you haven't been transparent or real, authentic. Three essential ingredients for evangelism. They're simple, but they're necessary. Gospel-based prayer. Gospel-based living. Gospel-based speech. Why? Why should I even consider it? Because I'm a recipient of the grace of God. That's the only reason. Like D. James Kennedy said, you receive the grace of God in salvation and the rest of your life from that day on is simply P.S. Thank you, Lord. 
just live in gratitude for the gospel. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we thank you for the instruction, the clear, simple instruction of your word. That for us to truly reach people, we need to be men and women of prayer. We need to be men and women who are committed to godly, wise living. And we need to be men and women whose speech is transformed by your grace. Who become good listeners and good responders with the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.